Hi, my name is Erin Tierney. I'm the president of the Canadian Ski Guide Association, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. But there's a big shift from being uh, someone that wants to be a guide to someone that is is ready to be a guide. And that has involved some maturity and some humility and a, a basic level of experience. So our courses are really geared towards uh, teaching from the ground up. The mountains that, you know, a lot of the time seem to be this glorious, beautiful, amazing, adventurous, heady place to be um, can also be really fickle and uh, and dark at, at times. Welcome back. I'm your host, Wes Gregg. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. We are proudly presented through the support of VEASAN Avalanche Control. Safety through innovation. We are happy to have support for this episode from Six Point Engineering out of Nelson, British Columbia. They specialize in engineering, design, avalanche risk assessments, mountain safety services, and project management. Greg Johnson and his team of engineers and avalanche professionals have a unique skill set that includes hazard assessment, infrastructure design, avalanche forecasting, and avalanche control programs. They serve the oil and gas, transportation, hydroelectric, mining, ski area, and land development industries. If you're scratching your head over some difficult questions in your next project in the mountains, look no further than Six Point Engineering. You can find out more at www.sixpointeng.com. Check out our interview with Greg back on episode 5.19 to hear more. Well, this is the second part of my two-part series. What is the ACMG? What is the CSGA? If you missed the first segment with Mike Adolph from the ACMG, go check out episode 7.13. Often people ask, what is the difference between the two guiding streams in Canada? Or, what are the guiding streams in Canada? Well, in this digital age, we can of course go online and look up the two associations. The Association of the Canadian Mountain Guides, or ACMG, and the Canadian Ski Guide Association, CSGA. But I do feel there's value in having current directors and leaders in these associations describe them. So, in this segment, I speak with CSGA, CSGI President, Aaron Tierney. Aaron is the president, as mentioned, of the Canadian Ski Guide Association. She has worked in the avalanche industry since 1997, mainly as a heli ski guide and instructor for the Canadian Ski Guide Institute. Lately, she has enjoyed exploring different arms of the avalanche industry as a forecaster, avalanche technician, and now as an instructor for the Canadian Avalanche Association ITP program. Erin lives with her family in beautiful Mount Curry, British Columbia. Now with all that said, let's get to my episode with Erin Tierney. Oh, well, hello there, Erin. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. How are you, Wes? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks for taking the time to come and join me today on the Avalanche Hour podcast. Let's start off. Let's just dive right into it. That's how I like to go. Who are you and what is your current role? Uh, my name is Erin Tierney. I'm the president of the Canadian Ski Guide Association, and I'm a guide, a heli ski guide, forecaster, uh, instructor for the CSGI and the uh, Canadian Avalanche Association ITP programs. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Where are you located right now? Where Where's home for you? I live in in uh, Mount Curry, which is just outside of Pemberton, BC, in the on the south coast. And uh, winter is arriving. It's currently snowing Perfect. just above my house. Oh, that's awesome. That's good. That was going to be my next question. Are the peaks starting to get a little bit wider? They should be. Yeah, no, we went from we went from summer to uh, to advanced fall, early early winter in a matter of twenty four hours. 
So I'm layered up with all my sweaters and slippers just trying to adjust. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that the truth? Like a week and a half ago, I was wearing bike shorts and riding and doing all kinds of fun things. And now I'm like, yeah, two jackets, wool socks. It's hard to believe that we work in the ski industry when fall first hits, right? (laughs) I know. I feel like such a wimp. And it feels like it gets colder as we get older. Is that is that true? Do you have that same feeling? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> colder and hotter. I fluctuate quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. That's great. So where did you grow up and where did you start winter recreating? Well, I grew up in downtown Toronto. Uh, But luckily, I was able to go skiing every weekend with my family up north and in the Collingwood area. And so I grew up a a ski racer in Ontario. Awesome. And uh, familiar stopping Yeah, I grew up ski racing in Ontario. That was kind of what there was to do. And then uh, when I was just turned 17, I had the opportunity to come and live out west with my aunt and uncle. And they'd been living in Whistler since the 70s. So uh, they converted their garden shed for me, and I got to live in the garden shed and and become a part of their family and uh, finish my high school life in in uh, Whistler and Pemberton. And that was my first introduction to uh, to living in the mountains. Wow, that is a awesome opportunity. And did you continue ski racing when you came out to, out west? Uh, briefly. I, I ski raced for about half the season. I was in the, the ski racing program and uh, skiing with the Whistler Mountain Ski Club. Uh, so my school was all arranged around around skiing, but I quickly uh, realized that I, I didn't have to ski race anymore. And uh, there was a lot of fresh snow to, to ski. And so I tried to teach myself how to learn to ski powder with my 195 slalom skis, which was a bit of a gong show at the beginning. <laughs> Yeah, how technology has changed, and um, it's it's pretty interesting. Myself, I grew up in the same area there, in in the Toronto area, and I but I was a dark horse. I skied freestyle, and um, and competed there out of that same that same area in the Collingwood Barry area. Uh, that's awesome. So then, I guess like when you're exposed to that that what Whistler Blackcomb has to offer and Pemberton and all of that stuff, it kind of, it kind of really explains your connection to moving into a backcountry world. So is, what's the main method of travel that you prefer to use when traveling in the backcountry? I'm, I'm definitely a skier. Um, it's what I've always done. Maybe I don't like adapt to change well. I don't know, but I tried snowboarding for about a hundred meters on a glacier one summer and that really didn't go well, but I I probably should have given it a little more chance. I think snowboarding is beautiful when done by people that know how to do it well. Um, (laughs) But no, I I prefer skiing and the ease and mobility that it gives me in the mountains. Oh, awesome. I should say that I am also an advanced beginner snowmobiler. Okay. That was going to be my next question. It's pretty hard in our areas here to really get after it without unfortunately having to uh, burn some fossil fuels. Yeah, I uh, I I had a sled early on and uh and and kind of battled through that learning curve, but thankfully I was taken out of my misery and uh was able to ski out of a helicopter for a lot of years and so I that was my my access into the mountains. <laughs> kind of skipped the snowmobile learning curve. Well, that's a good way to do it, especially if it was on the older sleds. And uh, so you, you missed out on muscling those giant yachts. And nowadays, our snowmobiles seem to be um, so nimble and so easy that it, it really takes a beginner into almost uh, intermediate stage, probably a little bit faster than they're ready for. I can speak for myself anyways, from experience. <laughs> <laughs> I would say you got to watch that throttle. It's feisty. Yeah. Yeah. When in doubt, throttle out. But sometimes that doesn't always work and it costs A-arms and things like that. But (laughs) (laughs) so when did you start really thinking about making skiing a career? Well, I think, I mean, in my unrealistic 
younger self dreams. I always wanted to make skiing a career of some kind with, with first with ski racing. And then, and then I came out West and I remember a couple of friends from school, we'd be taking the bus down from, from Whistler to the high school in Pemberton. Cause there wasn't a high school in Whistler at that time. And they'd already be hitchhiking back to Whistler to go skiing for the day. And so that kind of like, I morphed into that lifestyle pretty quickly it didn't do well for my university career um, because I always wanted to be up in up in Whistler skiing. So I, I got really good at being a ski bum and and waitressing and uh, at night and skiing all day. And but I was I got I was getting bored um, with my with my work life and I was kind of moving from job to job and didn't really know what I wanted to do. And then my friend uh, my friend told me she said I'm going to take the the Canadian Avalanche Association Level 1 ITP course and uh, in December, and that was December 98. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do that with you. So I, I signed up and we took the course. And then in uh, the spring, we signed up for the Canadian Ski Guide Level 1 course in Blue River. And we went up and did that. And that was that was the start of uh, of the first job that I ever had that I did for more than a year. And, and I was hooked and totally enamored with the whole, with the whole side of the industry. So that was the start. Yeah. Cool. So was that experience in Blue River, was that at Wiggly's? Yeah, the course was held uh, at Wiggly's and at the end of the course, I, I met Mike and he said, he said, uh, you know, we are having this big, uh, celebration next week it's the spring fling and it happened to be if i get this right with the years uh, warren miller's 50th anniversary and mike wiggly's 30th anniversary i believe and so that was just this huge gala um tons of people from all through the skiing industry um jim mcconkey mike wiggly junior benus all these like legends of of skiing history were there there was chocolate fountains and ice sculptures and and we went skiing and that was my first week of guiding and it rained and we skied in in knee deep slush just to get out of the out of the valley and I just thought it was the coolest thing ever I was totally hooked and I went home and told my my boyfriend who's now my husband at the time I was like this is I'm sorry I I have to go back up here and do this <laughs> That's awesome. Was that your first exposure to mechanized skiing? Uh, well, I, I had I patrolled a couple of years um, prior to taking these courses and, and getting invited to go work up there, um, and so I did do some some work on my days off with a company called Mountain Heli Sports that was in Whistler um, at the time, and that was pretty awesome too. Um, but it was this whole experience with the learning in the courses and uh, just seeing this whole world kind of open up that that really did it back in 1999. Wow, that's awesome. That's an amazing story. Like what a great, like it's so amazing to have that opportunity at 17 years old to move out, finish your high school years in Whistler and then just continue to, to blossom into the world that is so amazing in the ski industry. I mean, it has its challenges, but um, it's definitely a fun and and uh, exciting world. Was that the first time you were involved with the CSGA? Was on that level one course? Yeah, prior to uh, to my friend introducing me to the idea of taking taking the courses, I I didn't know anything about uh, about the Canadian Ski Guide Association or the ACMG or anything. I'd, I'd heard about the program at TRU, um, but it came down to me not really wanting to leave Whistler and, and the lifestyle that I was in, enjoying at the time. So this became a, this course was a real opportunity to, to learn um, and, uh, and do it in a way that I could still enjoy my life that I was living. At that time... Was there a lot of women starting to kind of lean into that that world of ski guiding? Well, interestingly enough, now that I look back over all the years of, of courses, uh, on my course, I believe we had three women, my friend, myself, and, and another woman. 
And, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of held steady throughout the years. Um, so I, you would think that maybe th there would be less um, back, back at that time. But I think, you know, we had, we had at least three and that kind of seems to be the norm for most of our courses nowadays too. So, but certainly when it came to time to work in the industry, uh, there were few and women were few and far between from, from what I saw anyway. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. I, that's, that's really neat that it really hasn't changed. Like the popularity amongst women taking the courses hasn't changed too much. How do you find now that integration of women into operations? How has that change been? Have you been noticing an increase or an influx there? Well, I was just going to say to add on to your, to your last question, yeah, there hasn't been a lot of change, but, um, so it was great that back then there, there were a few women on the course, but it would be really nice to see more and to continue. Mm. It's too bad that number hasn't grown. Um, because, uh, women, women are, have the potential to be great guides. Um, they bring a lot, a, a different view and, a, a, and some different skill sets, um, in addition to the, the technical skills. Uh, that that you're examined on. Uh, so I think mm -hmm. operationally, um, operationally, you know, it, it's throughout the last 25 or 28 years, whatever it is, um, it's been, I've, I've been the only woman in a large operation. And then I've been uh, amongst a group of five or six out of a group of 10 guides total. So really uh, dominant in, in the woman area, I guess, which, which was really cool. The, the energy definitely changes amongst the whole, the whole group when you have a, a more even mix of, of men and women, I think, which it's fun. Mm -hmm. It's a little more normal life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Yeah. That sounds like a lot more fun. So let's jump into what the Canadian Ski Guide Association is. So do you mind telling us who and what is the CSGA? Yeah, the CSGA is the Canadian Ski Guide Association. And just to be clear right off the start, there's kind of two parts to it. There's the the association. And so that is a volunteer run other than our administrator. Uh, it's volunteer run. It is member driven and it's a nonprofit association and it represents the uh, members, which are the certified guides to government and industry and insurance providers. And then there's the Canadian Ski Guide Institute, and that is our training school. And so it trains guides from the ground up, basically, to the point where they become full ski guides. So those are the, the two sections of the, the CSGA overall. Okay, cool. So the CSGA and the CSGI. So... Let's walk through the progress of the CSGA since its inception in 1988. What are some of the big major changes that you've seen over the last 30 years? Well, I, I don't think that there has been any massive changes over the last 30 years or 30 plus years. I would say that it's the association and the, the, the education program, the institute, has really grown uh, methodically um, over the years. It's we're never in a rush to get anywhere. We want to we've wanted to develop our courses um, in a real methodical way and and do it right. And so, but the, there is some. It is an interesting history. Um, so in, in 1988, the there were six operators that joined together to form the Canadian Ski Guide Association. And they had a few reasons for wanting to do that. Uh, one, they wanted to create more Canadian guides. Uh, a lot of the guides were coming from Europe at the time. At, at Mike Wigley's at the time, there were a total of 14 guides and 10 of them were from Europe. And the government was was not enjoying that so much. They, they were becoming a little more challenging to hand out visas. They wanted to see Canadians trained as Canadian guides. And so um, that was one part of it. They wanted to have more of a say in how their guides that they're hiring were, were being trained. 
Um, a lot of the guides at the time were coming uh, in as mountain guides. So great technical skills, but not all of them maybe had the, the greatest of skiing abilities, which if they couldn't keep up to the, the guests that they were skiing was not great for the overall product. So they wanted to have their guides that have, have strong skiing. And then another foundation uh, that the operators wanted to ensure was included in the curriculum was the recognition of the value of uh, customer service and client care. So the idea was that the these guides would have strong technical skills, good risk management skills. They'd be capable skiers and they would take care of their clients. And that meant that hopefully those clients would continue to come back and be and be return clients year after year, which was good for their business. So uh, Bob Sayer, who is a longtime guide in our industry, really involved in many facets of the industry, um, he was tasked with creating the curriculum for the CSGA. And so he went to the States, he went all over Europe, and he participated in guides courses, he audited guides courses, and really was on a fact-finding mission to bring back all the, the best practices of, um, of the industry worldwide to the CSGA program. So he created that curriculum, and then the first course was taught in 1990, uh, east of Blue River in the Monashies. The first instructors were, were Bob and Ken Francis from uh, Kootenai Heli Skiing. And they had three students, and that was the first level one course. Uh, from there, uh, the courses continued to grow and develop through through the 90s. Um, we continued to have uh, people from different guiding associations uh, come over and audit the courses to make sure that our standards were were good and um, and they were in line with with what uh, should be being taught. So I know on my level two course, I had um, French guides come over from the French guiding organization there. On my level three, I had Austrian guides looking at the course and, and giving feedback and, and learning from each other. So we've really um, benefited from relationships with different uh, guiding training schools from around, from around the world. Uh, in 2012, the, the association split from the training school and that the reason why we did that was we wanted to become in line with other professional uh other professions in in the industry like doctors and and engineers they're trained by universities and then they have their associations that represent their members um then the caa and the acmg both do the same thing with their training schools and, and memberships so that was a big step for us um, and around that same time, Helicat Canada, they um, fully recognized the Canadian Ski Guide courses. Um, they are as, a, as one of the standards um, for guides in the mechanized industry. So that was another great step forward for the, the uh, Canadian Ski Guide Association. And now uh, we have about 50, per- we represent about 50% of the guides in the mechanized industry in Canada, and we put 100 to 120 students through our courses every year. So it's been a slow, steady progression and building on that. And, and now our next chapter is moving into the uh, into adding some ski touring modules and assessments into, into the program to give more diversity to our members. Cool, cool. Yeah, that's... Um... That's a really interesting change, and we'll touch a little bit on that a little bit further here in our conversation. But since we talked about the amount of students that are coming through the program at this time, do you mind describing what the application process is and if there's any common shortcomings that seem to pose a challenge to applicants? Yeah, the application process is um, is pretty straightforward it's uh, there's some prerequisites that I'll I'll get to in a moment but I think the challenge comes with the idea that um, you get this idea that you want to be a guide you're like this is awesome somehow along the line you've been introduced to this idea of a career and you want to go and do it and you want to go and do it now but there's a big shift from being uh, someone that wants to be a guide to someone that is is ready to be a guide. And 
that as involves some maturity and some humility and a, a basic level of experience. So our courses are really geared towards uh, teaching from the ground up. So building that base of knowledge in our first courses, really focusing on teaching and then uh, continuing to build through through the, the different levels. Um, but that being said, you you need to come into the course with a, a certain level of personal experience and time and effort that you've put into it. So you want to be familiar with a map and compass and you want to have played with some ropes and have some idea of, of how they work. And we're going to teach all that in our courses, but uh, you want to have spent a little bit of time out in the mountains um, and developing your skills to a, to a basic level. Um, and then you want to be ready to take care of people because guiding is not about jumping out of the helicopter and ripping a line. That's for the movie stars. That's we're about taking people out and taking care of them and bringing them back safe. So having that switch in your mindset from a recreational person to a professional is a, is a huge step. Um, but the application process uh, for the level one, we require an 80 hour first aid course, uh, the Canadian Avalanche Association level one course, some form of um, ski or snowboard or telemark instructional course based like so a level one CSIA, for example, uh, and then uh, a fairly basic ski touring resume. To, to start off with. And then it just builds from there. Once you've applied for the level one and you've been accepted into the CSGI stream of uh, curriculum, uh, you take the course, the level one is about 80% uh, instruction. Then you're gonna go away. You're gonna go to work at operations, work with more experienced guides for a couple of years, two seasons, uh, working under their direction, training, uh, preparing for the next course. Uh, then you come back, you take that course. The level two is about um, 60% teaching and uh, 40% examining. Then you go away again for a couple more seasons. You take the, the CSGA level three module where it's, it's really about teaching you how to take that next level into analyzing uh, and creating programs. And then you come back the next year and, and do the exam. And from the beginning of the courses in the level one, uh, you're like I said, you're taught those those basic skills. The level two, we introduce uh, a little bit more gadgetry and things like that, and and build on that to the to the level three. So by the time you finish the program, you understand the most basic systems, and that gives you the ability to to build and and create uh, or solve any complicated problems that that might come along the way. And the, the whole basis of the program is that you you get the instruction uh, and then you go away and you work with experienced guides that are going to build your knowledge and, and you work in the industry under their supervision. And then you come back and you get the next level. So it's a real uh, mentored uh, internship of a program that takes somewhere between four to six years for most people. Yeah, cool. So similar to any kind of trades um, apprenticeship per se, right? You go, you learn the theory, then go apply it. Awesome. Yeah. That's a very comprehensive application process. What are some activities that people can use if they're struggling with that application process? So whether it's on the skiing side or, or anything like that? Uh, well, by the by the time people get to that they're ready to sign up for the level one course, they've they've achieved those prerequisites. So they've worked with professional associations already through first aid, ski instruction, and of course the Canadian Avalanche Association. So along the way, they've they've likely run into people that are connected in in the industry, have experience one way or another. So those are really good people to as resources to get information from. Um, talking to, to other local guides, um, going out with experienced people. And then, of course, you can always contact us uh, through our admin or you can email me directly, president at canskiguide.com. And we're happy to, to talk to any applicants that have questions and help you work through the, the process. 
and understand what it what it takes and um, the requirements. And then our website's pretty um, got quite a bit of information on it too about the the process. It's a it's about a six year process all in all. So it's all kind of laid out there on the website as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, perfect. How do you find from the ski teaching side of things? Some of the prerequisites are. Uh, with regards to the Canadian Ski Instructors Association, the CSIA, when a guide ends up working in that in that guiding industry, how how do you find that the guides continue to develop their ski teaching skills if they're not actively working in a ski school environment? Well, that's a good question that people ask quite a lot. Why do I have to be a ski instructor if I want to be a guide? And I asked myself, I asked that same question when I started. I ski raced and now I don't want to do that. I want to be a, I want to be a ski guide. I want to ski powder. And, but again, it's not about us. It's about our, our clients. It's not about us. It's a, it's about our clients and the, we'll say ski instructor just to cover all the bases, but whether you're skiing or snowboarding or, or, or uh, telemarking going through those courses uh, does a few things. One, it, it helps you with, with your skiing and refine, refine your skiing Um but most importantly, it teaches you how to analyze uh, other people's skiing. And there are very few really, really good skiers out there in the world. And even those good skiers can use refinement. Um, and if you can take a, an intermediate or an intermediate to advanced uh, powder skier, which is really challenging because most people don't get a lot of time to ski in powder so that they have that one week or that one day, you can change their day by being able to teach them how to move more efficiently or effectively down the mountain. And so that's really important. And that's going to, that's going to get people coming back to your operation year after year. And it's going to, um, it's going to connect you with people as return clients as well, which is as a guide, you want people coming back and requesting you. It's good, good for your business too. Um, so it really enhances the customer experience and then, and that's what you're doing. So when you go from your level one to your level two ski instructor, you've spent a couple of seasons already teaching. You're not teaching on the ski hill, but you're teaching, um, you're teaching in some even more challenging terrain. So by the time you get to, to take your level two, you've been, you have been working on it. You just haven't been working on it in a conventional um, in, environment. And uh, it's, it's really beneficial I know that not everybody sees the the benefit and the value, but um, hindsight in hindsight, you you will be able to see it. <laughs> and the other thing these courses do do too is they allow more time uh, in front of a group and learning how to speak to a group, how to manage a group, how to keep a group safe. That's what ski instructors do. They they take their group, they create a lesson plan for them. They they decide where it's safe to stop on the hill how to keep people engaged, how to give instructions in a concise, brief manner so that people can understand and then implement what they want them to do. So just by going through those courses, it's just more time in the saddle where you're speaking and, and delivering information to people. So that's where that aspect of the program comes in. Yeah, and I really respect that, being um, a strong supporter of the CSIA and, and um, an ex-ski instructor myself, um, I love ski teaching. Um, I think it's, there's a lot of value for me anyways, in, in helping others. One of the things too, I found in those CSIA courses in case people forget that part too, but again, with similar to the CSGA, we're providing a service. We're here to provide a service to a customer. And one of the things that the CSIA and it sounds like the CSGA also focuses on is being able to be good at customer service, <laughs> right? Is being able to provide that experience. And hopefully if an experience is not going as, as the guest had planned, that you're able to see that, recognize it, and make adjustments to try to, to help them along. And that's one of the things I learned uh, very early on in the ski instruction industry, and it's good to see that implemented here in the CSGA. Well, this goes all the way full circle where you started talking about implementing some ski touring modules. So that kind of speaks to what we, I want to ask next, which is, how has the CSGA adopted to the growing popularity in non 
mechanized ski guiding? Yeah, well, we're we're busy adapting to the continued demand for for mechanized guiding as well. There's there's still a huge demand for mechanized guides in our in our industry, and so our courses are are full months in months in advance. You have to apply really early, but um, there are some of our members that would like to be able to guide in a non-mechanized environment as well. Um, you know, we all know that the cost of a cat, a snow cat, or a helicopter is really expensive. So our courses have always included uh, a significant amount of, of ski touring in them, uh, just because we want to keep our costs, uh, I won't say affordable, but we'll keep our costs as low as we possibly can. So these modules, the two modules, they fall in after the level two and the level three certification, and they're they're uh, voluntary if, if someone wants to go down that road. They um, they focus they focus with continued uh, travel and glaciated terrain, um, some more, more adding on to more rope work and just more time uh, spent out in the mountains. Each each module is about is five days. Uh, so we but again we're moving slowly with this. So we have the first module we've been offering the first module that falls after the level two. Um, for a few years now, we have people coming in from other guides associations to to have a look and give us some feedback. Um, we're constantly tweaking the the curriculum to make sure that it's it's uh, appropriate and to the level that it needs to be. We always want our courses to be at or above the um, best practices and standards of the industry. And now we're working on the the second module, the assessment module. And we hope to be able to offer that next year to our to our um, students. And so we're not in any rush. We we understand that people want this, but we want to make sure that we're doing it doing it right and and doing it well. So I feel like we're on a good path with it. And I feel like the acceptance of that module and certification uh, within the industry will come will come well and be well received. There's a lot of uh, a lot of need for a lot of different kinds of guides out there. So people are excited about this addition to our program. Yeah, no, I, when I saw that, when I was uh, looking through the website, I was excited to see that on there. And um, it's, it's a good, it's a good extra to have. Um, A lot of us. Yeah. I mean, we're not always working in the mechanized world and we like to get out there and ski touring is a big part of that. And, and um, no, that's, that's an awesome answer. So, when we get down to the end of the line, so when a, a guide has has successfully finished their examination of the level three and are considered a fully certified guide, what is expected from a responsibility standpoint of that guide? Well, the level three guide is uh, is certified as a as a lead guide to be able to uh, take a group out into the mountains without supervision. Uh, it also certifies them to be able to supervise either directly or indirectly other groups in in the mountains as well. So that's kind of what their the, the training course is is built upon. Uh, the other parts of there are some other components in the course as well that build the student up. So by the time they finish, they can actually start to uh, one they're developing their own career, but they can also start to give back. So Presentations uh, in the course are a big are a big component uh, to teach them how to create uh, presentations and lesson plans and uh, speak well in front of a group and deliver education back so that hopefully we can move those level three graduates into our instructor pool as well, which will uh, hopefully create some more diversity in our in our pool. Um, and then the other exercise they go through is the creation of a of an operation of a fictitious operation from the ground up. So they're looking at everything from um, mapping and rescue cash locations and run, creating runs and and fuel costs and, and all these different things, so that they have a really good understanding of what a whole operation, what's required of a whole operation, and what that looks like. So that depending on who the person is, their experience, their connection with um, with operations out there in the industry, technically they could move into that um, that operations role 
with some good background um, through the course. And then overall, uh, a level three guide is expected to continue with their professional development in the industry. So they're regularly, you know, their courses are done, but they're still, they're still training and keeping themselves uh, fresh. They're acting as a, as a mentor to younger guides. Um, They're, they're expected to be members of their, their um, associations that support them. So in our case, the Canadian Ski Guide Association, the um, Canadian Avalanche Association actively participate in the, in the meetings and, and CPD sessions and just lead by example in the industry. They, they're now a, a somewhat senior member of, of the industry and, and it's taken them a long time to get there. So they have a lot to offer and, and give back as well. Hmm. Yeah, perfect. Now, has the CSGA worked with the International Federation of Mountain Guides Association at all in implementing a full path into the mountain guide realm? Or is that something that the CSGA has decided to steer away from? Yeah, no, the, the CSGA doesn't have any interest in creating, a, at this point, you know, maybe 20 years from down the road, things will be different. But right now, uh, we don't have any interest in, in creating a, a full path year-round uh, guiding certification. Our focus is on winter winter travel and skill building. And that's uh, that's where we want to focus and on and, and do it well. Mm. Awesome. That's a good thing. Yeah. Powder, powder skin and smiles, right? That's what we want to bring. What is the CSGA doing currently in their uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion world? So diversity and inclusion um, and equity has certainly been a a topic of conversation over the last bunch of years in in the world. And and it is in in our... um, snow industry as well i think um maybe less less evolved but certainly the the doors have been open and the conversations have been started we all know that our our industry is male dominated uh but i think the difference now is that we're verbalizing that and recognizing what that means that if you don't identify um as a as a male in our industry that there might be certain barriers that um barriers to entry that are are limiting your your advancement or your or your ent- entry into the uh, industry. So I think it's really important and it's certainly something that that we talk about on our courses um, and with our instructors how we present our our information, how we create our lessons and how we 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 teach those with our with our words and our actions are really important to create an open uh, learning environment uh, so that people feel comfortable um, and recognize that that everyone needs to be shown respect uh, and patience in in their learning uh, and so it's we're at the beginning of this road um, it's a long it's a long path but the awareness is there and the the conversation is is started um, and I think we just need to continue with that and and go from there and you know we talked about there haven't been a lot of a lot of women in in through the the CSGA program um comparatively to to men um so the CSGA is uh supports the Lisa Corthal's memorial bursary uh which supports women going through the CSGI stream of of education uh financially to try and make it make uh a little easier to to get to courses, so that's one thing. And then another driving uh, mission that we've been on ever since the beginning of the inception of the CSGA is we've always uh, been conscious of keeping the cost of the course low, as low as possible, uh, to to have as many people come into the educational stream as possible, and and uh, yeah, and create opportunities for people because it's it's a really expensive industry to get into. We're conscious of that. And we operate on a on a very fine line of getting the bills paid and and producing the the content that we need to produce. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. So then, also, 
in the same vein of of um, the increased awareness on diversity and inclusion, there's also an increase of awareness in in mental health and how uh, different industries are managing the mental health of workers or members within these societies. So, what is the CSGA's stance and policy on mental health, and what is offered to members and students of the program who may be struggling? Well, I'm really excited about the work that the CSGA is doing with mental health. Um, It's kind of an overarching theme, which includes um, diversity and inclusion and equity, because if, if, you know, if if those things aren't there, if there's problems there, that's going to be affecting your mental health. The reality of our industry is this great heady place to, to be and live and exist and work. And, but uh, there's a lot of stress associated. Uh, there's, there's, you know, critical incident stress when things go wrong that as guides, we hold a lot of attachment to because our jobs are to take people out and bring them back safe. And, you know, sometimes that, that doesn't work, um, you know, despite our best efforts. And that can, that can really affect a, a guide who's been doing everything they can to keep people safe. So there's that side of things. And then there's the uh, accumulated stress that we experience throughout a, a winter season, cold, dark, long winter season. You're trying to work as much as possible. You're traveling in winter conditions. You're trying to manage uh, weather and snow conditions when really Mother Nature is the one in control there. So, you know, you have guest expectations. There's a lot going on that that adds stress to our, our daily lives. So um we promote in our courses the idea that that stress exists, that it needs to be recognized and managed in healthy ways, um, and that in the event of an overload of, of accumulated stress or a critical incident, uh, you might feel some things that, that aren't good, that don't feel good, but they're completely normal and there is help and resources available to, to you to be able to work through those things and come out on the other side in a, in a positive way. And so we have a list of resources on our websites. Uh, like I said, we, we st- spend some time on every course to talk about uh, mental health. We're not mental health experts, um, <laughs> but we want to point people in the right direction on those resources. Um and then the CSGA is also in the process of, of partnering with uh, a group called Resilient Minds who uh, give qu- courses that are more on the proactive side of things and creating awareness about, about stress and healthy ways to manage and also healthy ways to manage in a, after critical incidents. So I'm really hopeful we're going to be able to get a course together here to offer um, not only to our members, but to the industry as well and start creating that mm. more of the proactive education side of things. Um, and then we have another really exciting initiative that we're part of with um, other members of the industry, Helicat Canada, uh, the CAA, the ACMG, um, ourselves, Avalanche Canada, and Backcountry Lodges of, of BC. And we've all come together and taken some people from each arm of the industry, and uh, they attended a, a peer support training course this fall in September with the idea that if an operator or uh, or an independent person is experiencing some kind of uh, stress or a critical incident, they can call and uh, one of one of these members will be able to either speak to them online or in or in person to run some defusing sessions uh, immediately after the event as also shares share resources and and expectations of how they might be feeling. Uh, in the in the coming weeks, and the idea that help and support is there, and that that message is going to be coming from your peers in in your industry, um, which I think makes it so much more accessible and, and palatable to to manage. So I'm really excited to see where that that program goes, and yeah, I'm proud of the the work that we're we're doing with that because it's certainly a thing. Yeah, no doubt. That is, that's a good step. That's a step in the right direction. And I find peer support um, in any form is, is always beneficial. Um, Just to know that you're not the only one, you know, that um, there are other people out there that are struggling, perhaps with the exact same thing that you're struggling with, even though that can be so hard to accept where you're like, you know, 
I always tell people, I, I challenge you to stand in front of the mirror and look at yourself straight in the eye and hold your hands out and say, there's nothing greater than this. <laughs> I think most people would struggle yeah, to do that with a straight I, face. <laughs> <laughs> and I, the, the cool thing is, is that I, I think more and more people are becoming comfortable in, in sharing their stories uh, and experiences with, with mental health struggles in the last couple of years. And, and that it's not a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of, of strength uh, to be able to recognize this. And, and there's more and more support out there, which I think is, is just great. Because for so long, it was just shove it down and, and, uh, and have a beer and off you go again. So I think we're really moving in a, in a great direction here. Yeah, that's funny. A friend of mine last week when I was down in the Kootenays said that exact thing. I was like, didn't you deal with this? Like, how did you deal? No, man. You just shove it down in there, like way down, as deep as you can. Forget about it. And I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll see you in 10 years and see how that's working for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> everyone, everyone has their time um, when, they can, when they can deal with it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Sometimes you do need to postpone it a little bit. Um, can you share a story of your training path and what advice you have from the lessons that you might have learned along your way to aspiring guides and avalanche professionals? Yeah, well, I, I talked a little bit about how I got my start. Um, I feel quite fortunate to have been taken into such a large operation with so many um, really strong, experienced guides. There was so much to learn from. And I think, but there's also value in working for a small operation um, and, and meeting multiple people from in different, in different areas and getting, getting your inf information from so many different areas. But with my path, um, I was offered after that one glorious week <laughs> in the spring, um, I was offered three weeks for the following year, one in January, one in February and one in March. And so I took those and I went up to staff training and, we had this group that would always come early uh, for staff. They would come kind of halfway through staff training before everyone else came. And um, they were at our staff dinner and I was talking to a couple of the guests and they said, well, we need a tail guide. Do you want to come out and, and tail guide with us tomorrow? And I was like, yeah, I do for sure. That would be awesome. And a couple of the other guys heard this and they're like, you can't go with those guys. You know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't go with them. The only reason they want you to come is because you're a girl. And I thought, I don't care why they want me to come with them. I'm, I'm going skiing and I'm, I'm going to go be a tail guide. So off I went. And uh, so that was another week that I got added on there. And then I just said yes to everything. Like if they needed someone in the radio room, if they needed someone to, to drive and, you know, do the shuttles for, for guests and lunches out to the fuel caches, I said yes to that. And, um, and then I got extra weeks added on here and there. And I ended up spending 18 weeks from staff training all the way through to the end of the season uh, that, that first year at the operation with, I don't know how many weeks of guiding, but there was a, a lot of weeks of guiding in there and some weeks of doing the other stuff. And the value of doing that, that th those other jobs was amazing because I really got to see how the whole operation functioned together and how integral everybody was to the, to the whole show. Um, so I think, uh, I think that's that was a real great first start, um, and then uh, it just went from there. I, I worked uh, full time from from then on, and I I, I worked hard and I I trained hard, um, and I worked my way up through the operation, became the operations manager, and uh, I just took advantage of every opportunity I could, and went to the CAA meetings in the spring and became involved with the CSGA. I got my level three in 2004. And so started teaching, observing, and then teaching right after that. I joined the CSGA board um, fairly early on for the first go around and, and just kind of tried to take advantage of everything I could. So that would be my advice is just if you're going to jump in, commit as, as much as you can and, and be involved. There's so many different associations and, and things going on, opportunities to learn um, take advantage of it all. Cause there's a lot of really interesting people in this industry that you can learn from. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's um, definitely a lot of truth to that. You know, I'm, I'm a big proponent of that same type of behavior, you know, like just say yes to any opportunity and, and you can just learn so much. 
Um, sometimes there's challenges involved in doing that, but you, you know, you learn what you like, you learn what you don't like. Um, you know, sometimes you say yes to something and then you think to yourself, well, I'll never do that again. <laughs> but <laughs> there's, there's other times that, um, you know, it, it has a much more positive outcome. So in all of these years of traveling in the backcountry, uh, do you care to share an experience in the mountains that you feel changed the way you approached how you travel? So be it a close call or a reality check. Well, I think, I mean, there, there's, a, there's so many experiences that have shaped my, my thought processes and my, my risk tolerances. Um, you know, and it early on it started, I think it just depends on, <clears throat> sorry, it depends on your exposure. I, I find student, some students come into the course and they've already had these major incidents in their lives that have already started to shape them. For me, it was uh, things happening to other people, events happening um, in the news, and then happening to people that I knew, colleagues or acquaintances, and then happening directly to to my friends, my good friends, and then and then happening to me. And that whole progression of recognizing that the mountains that you know a lot of the time seem to be this glorious, beautiful, amazing, adventurous, heady place to be um, can also be really fickle and uh, and dark at, at times. And that we, the more, and of course it's a bit cliche, but the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And so I think um, there's just been, the experiences that I've had have just had me add more layers of, of safety, of more layers of, of margin around to, um, to try and to try and protect myself, um, but that being said, I love to ski steep and I can and fun terrain, and I can talk myself into all, all kinds of different situations. I might leave the house with one perspective and and go out with an and you know end up doing something else. But um, as far as experiences go, you know, one that I can think of was uh, the winter of two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten. Um, in the Caribou and Monashies, and I think uh, in the Southern Monashies as well, that we got three surface oil layers in the top 70 centimeters uh, in the early part of uh, January into early February. And then it didn't snow for pretty much the rest of the season. So we had these three really well-preserved active layers. And uh, I remember the day that they, they started waking up it was everything was fine, and then all of a sudden stuff started running, and then stuff turned into it into slabs, and then you would seemingly just look at something, and you'd see a two-kilometer fracture line appear, and the whole mountainside would come down, including taking out traditionally, you know, quote unquote, ninety-eight percent safe terrain. Um, fracture lines were wrapping around whole features two kilometer long features in the in the mountains um and it got to the point where you know some operators closed down that year early because they didn't have terrain they felt they could access while being safe uh we we had a large have a large tenure and so we had lots of opportunity to ski safe places but even those uh safe places were being affected um or coming close to the runouts of, of some of the avalanches, you know, something would go in the, in a Creek bed and it would end up being a 2.5 at the bottom of the Creek where you never would have thought you'd have any, have anything before. So that kind of just showed me that um, to really respect the potential of, of terrain features and the potential of runouts of avalanches in, in certain conditions. And I think it was Carl class. And I, I believe in uh, I think it was the ISSW that that next fall talked about it being the worst avalanche conditions in in 40 years. Um, so it was certainly a, an eye opening experience to have your everything that you thought you know completely change about about where you work and operate. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's good. Yeah, it, you know, it's we always get feedback when we make the wrong decision, right? And you don't get feedback when you make the right decision. So 
it or you think you've made the right decision. So it's always an interesting one. It's one that, um, you know, we base this podcast a little bit, not necessarily on that topic, but we definitely, it's a common question we ask everybody because for those of us in the industry, it's a bit of a numbers game. And like, as you alluded to, right, you started with experiences from other people and then until finally you end up with an experience of your own. That's that's a wonderful answer. Now, what is one tool that you wouldn't go to the backcountry without? Now, this one omits all your standard safety equipment. This would be something like a bag of candy or uh, <laughs> extra pair of mitts or something along those lines. <laughs> that's what you want is my... I always bring extra mitts. Well, I <laughs> in thinking about this question, I thought... I, I think I, I always try and bring uh, perspective and hand warmers. So maybe that fits in with the extra mitts. My hands get stupidly <laughs> cold and uh, the hand warmers are my, my best friend. But uh, I really, it kind of leads back into what we were just talking about, but really keep, you know, going in with a perspective that allows you to see all the different facets of, of the day as they, as they happen. You've got the stuff that happened before you left the house, you've got the stuff that happened on the way to wherever you're going. Then you've got the situation when you're there, if you're going by yourself or with friends or with, uh, with clients. And, uh, you know, especially in, in, in mechanized guiding, well, in any kind of guiding, you know, you start out with a plan A and see how far you can work through that alphabet. Um, but having the ability to work through the alphabet and change your, change your plans as you go, um, I think perspective keeps things keeps things real and, and present. I think if you go only with an objective, you're driven towards that objective. And if you don't reach it, maybe your day wasn't as good or you you try and work around to get to that objective. But if you bring along some perspective as well, then you can kind of have those conversations with yourself and make sure that um, that you are making good decisions and not talking yourself into something for whatever reason that may be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that perspective. It's been a good tool bag that I've been acquiring over the last few years of of doing these interviews. So where can people find out more about you and the CSGA and the CSGI? Well, we've got our website, um, canskiguide.com. There's a ton of information there, um, a little bit about the association, but also majority of, of it is about the the training school. And like I said, you can, you can contact me directly. Um, I'm happy to, happy to talk about anything, anything and everything and try and help and point you in the right direction if you need something. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's, that's it. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And we'll include all of that information in the show notes. If you're interested in going to uh, check that stuff out on the website there, there'll be a, a plethora of information there for you. What's one question I forgot to ask that I should have? Well, I wouldn't say it's really a, a question that you forgot to ask, but I would just like to acknowledge that, uh, you know, the CSGA has and the CSGI have come a long way since the original vision of the six operators back in, in 1988 and, uh, and our, first, our first courses. And that uh, I think a lot of guides owe their their careers um, or some thanks to of their careers to the development of the the CSGA and the the volunteers that that run the program the board of directors um, Bob for his vision and his initial creation of the the curriculum and our course uh, coordinator Mike Hano our, our ad administrator Carrie and then um, all the host operators of our of our courses Whistler Heli Skeen uh, Mike Wigley's uh, Selkirk Wilderness and uh, Kiefer Lake Lodge, because it really is, uh, especially uh, you know the 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 um, association is a is volunteer run, so it really is the effort of a lot of passion, passionate people that are really appreciative of what the CSGA has done for them and and wanting to give back. So I think it's uh, I think it's a pretty cool association and part of main, the main reason why why I'm involved in there. So I just wanted to say mm -hmm. thanks to everybody. Yeah, and I think quite often it's it's forgotten that a lot of these associations are volunteer run. Everybody always assumes that oh well, there's there, I mean there's always at least one person that's being paid because somebody's got to make sure that the bills get paid. 
Um, but it, yeah, I think people often forget in these not-for-profit societies that it's the members and the volunteers on the board that make all of this stuff possible for us. And, and yeah, we, we should be grateful for the effort and the time that people are putting in in order to make sure that we deliver, that you're able to deliver the content and, and offer a program that, that helps develop a safer backcountry community for, for Canadians and, and international travelers. That's awesome. <laughs> and and just on that note with the international, um, I think it's really cool to point out that our, our guides are also, you know, working working strongly in, in Canada, but also in the, the US and New Zealand, um, New Zealand and Iceland uh, and Japan and Chile and Argentina. And uh, we're one of our next steps, too, is looking at how we can maybe reach those people in those countries a little bit more with uh, doing some doing some courses a little bit closer to home for them. And so, uh, yeah, the CSJ's got guides all over the world working and a long way from 1988 with three guides uh, in the first course. Yeah, no doubt. That's amazing. That's that's a, a great to hear that um, that that the um, organization has spanned worldwide and that there are Canadian ski guides out there you know, doing their thing, bringing, bringing powder skiing and smiles to, to willing customers. And that's what's important. That was an amazing conversation, Aaron. I know it's, it's tough to come on and talk about yourself and talk about um, what it is you're doing, but you know, we, we appreciate having you here and thank you very much for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Wes. It was a really great opportunity to speak with you and I really like what you're doing with the Avalanche Hour podcast. So keep it up. Thank you. And there we go. Another great episode in the bank. If you like what you're hearing, then subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Also, leave us a review to share your appreciation. Or you can reach out to us at the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com. Additionally, if you'd like to share some financial appreciation, we have a new donate function on our website, theavalanchehour.com. These episodes wouldn't be possible without the generous support from our sponsors, Beeson Avalanche Control and Six Point Engineering. Let's not forget the great new artwork from Mike T. You can find him at MikeT.com. Music in this episode is provided with permission from the artist, Age Diamante. While you're cruising around the internets, why don't you give us a follow on the socials to stay up to date with new and upcoming episodes. I'd like to thank you all for listening to my episodes over the last few seasons. I'll be taking a hiatus from the podcast for the remainder of this season due to some personal obligations. I would like to thank you, the listeners, for your kind words of support as I've met some of you out in the wild. Those kind words solidify what we are doing here. I'm saddened to make this decision, but I'm hopeful that I will return next season. Thank you, Caleb, and the rest of the team, and I look forward to being a listener for the remainder of this season. Thanks for listening. Be kind out there. Share your experiences and stories from the mountain to continue to grow this community. Cheers.